0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Curiouser and Curiouser. I'm Sarayu Srinivasan, and we try to do this every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This is the show where we dig into all the things that I am most curious about. It could be the arts, science and technology, a book, a group of people, a person, a conversation, We oftentimes dig into music, um, but the one thing that you're going to be guaranteed of is you're going to walk away learning something new, um, perhaps becoming a fan of somebody new, Um, but the point is that this is going to quench your curiosity for at least an hour every week. Um, So the format that we generally like to follow is um, whether we have a guest or just doing a deep dive on a particular topic is uh, we generally go for about 45 minutes to an hour and then uh, take questions and comments. Sometimes we intersperse them. Uh, uh, Oftentimes if we have a panel, we will do that. throughout the show. But uh, what we will do today is uh, we've got a uh, phenomenal guest that we could talk to for hours and hours, but uh, we have a bit of his time and uh, he is a little bit under the weather. So we want to be cognizant of both of those things. So we will try to get through as much as we can and then have folks, um, if you have questions, uh, put them in the chat or uh, you can come up and um, we'll have you Uh, share them directly with the guest. So um, let's get to it. Um, I want to introduce today a very, very special guest. Uh, He is an old friend of mine. um, And this is somebody that has had a extraordinary and extremely illustrious career, uh, the sort of journey that many of us can only dream of. He spent uh, multiple decades leading organizations uh, across the public, private, and social sectors. This would be across multiple continents and industries, um, and has has just set, had the, the the kind of experience that um, one would expect to read about in a book, uh, which is great because he's written two of them, and one of them we're going to dive into uh, during the third part of our show. Um we're going to, uh, I think, you know, for in the interest of time, try to divide it up into three pieces, which is look at his background and journey, uh, talk about what he's doing now and then dive into his book, which is something that he is very passionate about and has gotten accolades from everybody, uh, from uh, Bill Gates to um, an old, another old friend of mine, Karen Muslim Darshaw, who is the CEO of Biocon. Um, but uh, our our guest today um was the former CEO and chairman of Microsoft in India. He uh, also sat on the boards of uh, organizations uh, as diverse as uh, Volvo and uh, Lifestrand Sciences uh, and the Harvard Business School, Theramax. He was the chairman of the Bank of Baroda. He was the co-chairman uh, of the board of Infosys. And these are just his past accomplishments, uh, and I'm sure I'm leaving many things out. Today, he is the chairman of uh, the GEAP, which is the Global Energy Alliance for People and Planet, which was launched at COP26 with uh, $10 billion of committed capital to focus on accelerating investment into green energy and renewable energy solutions, He's also the UNICEF's special UNICEF Special Representative for Young People and Innovation and the founder of the Global Alliance for Mass Entrepreneurship, which the acronym is GAME. He's a venture investor uh, for the social impact uh, venture firm Unitas Ventures, and he's on the boards of the Rockefeller Foundation and uh, Hitachi Limited. Um, and uh, as I mentioned, he has also found the time to write not one, but two books. Um, His latest book is, What the Heck Do I Do With My Life? How to Flourish in Our Turbulent Times. Um, And so I want to welcome my old dear friend, Ravi Venkateshan, to the show. Ravi,
1: welcome. Hey, hey, Saru, I was uh, almost embarrassed with this effusive introduction, but uh, thank you for that. And more importantly, thank you for having me. Uh, on your show, and it's what a great way to get reconnected after uh, a gap of a couple of years, thanks to COVID. So here we I are. I
0: know, I know. Well, um, it sounds like you have COVID, so we are, we are very appreciative. <laughs> I <hope not. laughs> yeah, I do. That's actually not even funny. It's it's funny because it's not as severe anymore. It feels like. Um, it feels like that most people are, you know, who are vaccinated, at least, uh, if they're getting it, it's milder and milder. And so for that, we have to be thankful. So, um, I want to, you know, these are things that I don't know about you. And I want to take a step back because when people look at you and your career, it's, and I think you've said this, it's really to sort of imagine, well, you know, it's really easy for Ravi to give any advice uh, or write a book or, but you started out like all of us. So tell us about your where you grew up, where you were born, where you grew up, your parents, your background. <laughs> um, I want to hear a little bit about your personal journey. And take us to IIT. And before you go there, I'm sure people know what IIT is. And if they don't, you should be ashamed of yourself. It's the Indian Institute of Technology, uh, the you know foremost, uh, I say technical university, but I think they teach other things there that produces brilliant, brilliant people uh, that I mean, I I will tell you, I only not know intrinsically how brilliant these people are. I have worked with many, many of them over my career um, and extraordinary folks. So you went to IIT. So I'd love to hear your background, your personal journey and what took it. Oh, and one more thing I have to say, getting into IIT people is no joke getting into harvard compared to getting into iit is a joke so the fact that you even have iit after your name tells you something about the quality and the metal of the person that you're speaking to so ravi please
1: hey i'm not so sure about all that you said sorry but anyway look um where do i begin so i was born in 1963 which puts me at 59 i was born in delhi in new delhi in india um, I uh, was born into very, very modest circumstances. My father was a scientist uh, in uh, working for the government of India in the Department of uh, Defense. Uh, mom was a homemaker. I grew up in the shadow of an elder sister. She was considerably, she is considerably older than me. And for most of my childhood, she was this bright, shining star. Uh, charismatic person and completely eclipsed me. Uh, I I was a incredibly, um, what should I say? Um, introverted kid lacking self-confidence uh, in my early years. I was so shy when, when somebody would enter the house, I would literally run upstairs and hide under the bed, uh, hoping not to be discovered. Um, why was and,
0: that? Let me interrupt you and say, what, why was that? I don't
1: know. I, be, I need a shrink, but luckily I, it cured itself over time. But uh, yeah, that's how um, lacking in self-confidence I was. I was but very... it, wasn't,
0: it wasn't because you didn't like people. It was just because you were shy? I,
1: or... I, was, I was very shy and awkward and uh, felt inept that's the best way to put it and then i was i was mediocre at studies and terrible at sports and i went to a you know tough boys school and um yeah i wasn't i didn't exactly have great social skills so i hung out with a couple of other outcasts and misfits and that's and it was really bad because my even my mom who was my greatest fan and supporter was concerned about uh, what is this boy going to grow, uh, grow it to. So uh, luckily for me, a couple of things happened, Sarin. One is I got a really bad uh, health issue, which forced me to drop out of uh, school for about a year or a little more. So for a whole year, I was just at home, homeschooled. And what happened is we, we lived near a very excellent public library. Public libraries are rare in India, okay, or really good ones. Um, it's, it's not like it is in the US. But we were really blessed. And so I started popping over and reading. And by the end of the year, I was reading uh, science, basically biology, astronomy, physics, chemistry, about four grades a- ahead of my um, classmates. And I was really... Yeah, I, I found my love. I found my calling. And so that was one thing that happened. And then I ran into a high school teacher. I'll never forget her name, Mrs. Malhotra. And for whatever reason, she says, Ravi is going to grow up to be a great scientist. And this is the this Pygmalion effect, right? There, there, just, there really wasn't any evidence I was going to be great at anything, let alone a scientist. But I started believing in it. And it became self-fulfilling. And so suddenly my grades shot up. I, and then, and,
0: and why was that? Did she just, was it... Uh, you know, I have it no
1: a- idea. I've made so many efforts over the years to try and find her. What happened to her? Because I wanted, she changed my life. And she changed my life by just giving me self-belief. So it really tells you the power that uh, words can have. Um, and... I'm very grateful, eternally grateful to her. But the combination of the two things, uh, I started doing well. I studied more and more. I uh, excelled. Other guys started looking up to me, and you know that was the great turnaround. Now you talked about IIT. So those days, uh, you know, I really wanted to be a scientist. In fact, my um, I won something called the National Science Talent Thing, which was a big deal back in nineteen seventy-eight or whatever it was, and I focused on the study of ants because oh, wow. yeah my great great uh, inspiration was the scientist uh uh eo wilson who just died a couple of years and his b- book seminal book was uh, called the ants and so i became a keen naturalist and um and so i won the the scholarship for my understanding of the behavior of of all things but um, of course those days you couldn't be seen as successful if you weren't a scientist or uh, sorry a doctor or an engineer scientist was okay but not really all that good Um, so you had to be in i couldn't stand blood so it narrowed down the choice pretty easily to engineering now here's the problem you had to go to iit it wasn't easy to get into iit so what happened i took the exam the first year and i did okay but not great so i had to go to uh, i got admission to IIT madras which was a different city and so the morning of my departure i said dad i don't feel like going he was indulgent he said okay you're still young go next year uh, something happened and i blew the exam next year and i got a crappy rank and it was really so, bad so you I, have
0: to take the exam it's not like deferring for a year it means no, you, you have, have to retake the exam and oh my god and
1: compete all over again and whatever happened that day I didn't do well at all uh, and I got a lousy rank and a, but uh, you know I had to go it was really bad that year because I felt I'd let my parents down I was almost suicidal but
0: then I and yeah. that's not a, that's not even a joke by the way. I think no, it's a lot of a people joke. do commit suicide yeah, yeah, because yeah. of the IIT. It's so so and even when you're there it's a lot of pressure. You yeah, know, I MIT, the, I, IIT my,
1: I had two classmates commit suicide while yeah. I was there because they couldn't stand the pressure and so forth. Yeah. Anyway, I got in and then um, I said okay, uh, I really now have to excel. So I, you know, I did now I was surrounded by the smartest people i've ever met yep. at, um, since you know then or since then, yep. uh, and that includes at places like Harvard Business School where we w- both were or uh, yep. at my- Microsoft, which you know has some pretty smart people but no the sheer concentration of um, um, particularly left brained intellect was stunning, and um, I said look i I have to make up for my lack of talent, my mediocrity, by just working five times as hard or ten times as hard. And so that's what I did. I just worked my way to the front of the class uh, because I was competitive. And so, you know, five years passed and I joined the great thundering herd to the United States. Back then, India, you know, hadn't opened up the economy. It was a... Yeah, you know, grim place in terms of opportunities for bright young people, and so most of us uh, came to the U.S. and it, it's not a, something I thought a lot about. It was what year? The, what year was, was this, Ravi? This was eighty-five. Okay. So uh, I left India on the fifteenth of August, nineteen eighty-five. Why is that date significant? Because it that was, was my, ind- it was Independence
0: it, Day, and it's my yeah. father's birthday.
1: Yeah, so it was a very special day, as you uh, well know. So I left India on Independence Day 85, never intending to come back. Those days, uh, they didn't give foreign exchange very easily, and I messed up something. So I boarded the plane with exactly $20 in in my pocket. I ran into a friend on Pan Am, (laughs) and uh, we ended up drinking first whiskey in Frankfurt Airport, and he made me pay for it. So we landed in New York with $11. So that was the start. And then the rest of it was the typical, you know, student immigrant experience, which is strive and work hard and hope to get a job. And I did. And I was so incredibly lucky to get a job with a company called Cummins Engine Company in the middle of uh, Indiana. and. I spent. I was to spend the next fifteen years of my life there. I never realized uh, at that time how special a company and place. So you it was. went to
0: Ravi. Let me stop you for a minute. You went to HBS before Cummins.
1: No, no, no. I was at Cummins for four years. HBS is a whole another story. But okay. I was at Cummins for four years. And so you then... came
0: to work. So you came to the United States to work.
1: I came to the United States to build a life. Got it. I, so I, the way. To get here was a scholarship to study engineering, but I had no interest in engineering. (laughs) I I wanted to work and build a new life. What was
0: your undergraduate degree from IIT?
1: It was mechanical engineering, and and then my master's was in in the same at at Purdue University, which is in Indiana. So my first job was a manufacturing engineer in a grim shop floor making diesel engines. And um, again, you know, people cr- come into your life and they change it. So one of the summer interns and um, um, in a year into my uh, work was a lady called Natasha Pearl. And Natasha was a summer intern from HBS and we became friendly and she said, you've got to apply to HBS. So I said, what is HBS? So, well, OK, so. The next year I bumped in my application and I promptly got rejected. So I was very devastated. So, I, But, you know, those days um, there wasn't email. So I called up the admissions office and spoke to an admissions officer. I said, why did you reject me? She said, well, there's nothing particularly interesting about you. <laughs> okay. So I said, oh, okay, w- what do I need to do? She said, you have decent grades, a good GMAT score, but sort of so does everybody else. What have you done that's interesting? So I said, "What constitutes interesting?" She said, "You need to show leadership. You need to show, uh, you know, some sort of community service. Differentiate yourself." I said, "Okay, fine." And so I went to work with a vengeance. So I said, I went to my boss and said, "I need to be a manager." He says, "Well, you're 23 years old. You know, give it time." I said, "No, you don't understand. I need to ru- lead a." business now so well the only thing that was open was um the uh it was it was called group manager manager of a, of a small fuel systems components plant that was being shut down and the reason that that job was open is nobody wanted it it was so horrible it was a grim old plant uh because it was known that they were going to shut it the morale was horrible the uh uh, many of the employees used to carry drugs alcohol porn knives um in their toolbox and i showed up and i was the manager and you can imagine how what a hit it was with them that they had this young kid um you know look different talk different um and but but it was the most sensational experience of my life sorry because It taught me everything I have since um, learned about leadership. I uh, became an uh, effective, learned to become an effective manager and a leader. And the most interesting thing is when I applied to HBS two years later, the I went the you know the reference letter or letter of reference. I didn't go to the CEO of the company who was from HBS i went to the head of the union with whom i had locked horns and he had developed a great grudging respect for me and so my um, application was very different how often do you get the head of a diesel workers union writing the letter about this this kid so um, yeah and and then i wrote about my experience turning around this factory in the Harvard Business Review, and I remain to this day the youngest ever published author in HBR. I'm not saying it with pride, I'm giving you a sense of how hard I tried yeah. to to succeed, yeah. okay? That's all it was. See, the opening uh, inscription in my new book is by a famous psychologist called Carol Dweck. Uh, she wrote that book called, uh, what is it called? Growth Mindset. Anyway, here's what she says. A person's true potential is unknown and unknowable. It is impossible to foresee what can be accomplished with years of passion, hard work, and training. And I th- I really think I'm living evidence of this statement, which is I started out poorly, uh, no great. I, I, to this date, with no false modesty, I, I think I'm I'm okay. I'm average. I'm not above average. Sensationally bright. But no, I'm very driven, um, and I was willing to work harder and take feedback and act on it, and um, yeah, and I think that's how I got cranking.
0: Does that make sense? I, you know, it's so interesting hearing all of this. Um, you may or may not be surprised, but I have found that oftentimes, the uh, most of the people have sort of uh, and uh, like yourself actually, uh, you, you undersell yourself. You have. And innate brilliance, but um, it really speaks to the, what persistence and focus and just never giving up and uh, trying to figure a way out uh, and applying yourself to. And I can think of many examples, including, that have had your story, including yes. uh, somebody else from India with an IIT, teacher, Vinod Kosla, who is in sure. my line of work, uh, Scott McNeely, Elon Musk, my mother, who, you know, she wasn't a very good student until, you know, she became, I don't know, when she just decided to put her mind to it, then all of a sudden she topped all India in her grades, which was wow. an extraordinary feat in those times, in the 50s or 60s. And so, you're, you know, my mother tells me she just decided she was going to put her mind to it. She happens to be a, a brilliant person. But for the rest of us, you know, for people like me, I have noticed in my own life that sometimes, uh, and I've seen it in many other people's lives, there's a a blooming process and you kind of figure out, hey, I know that I'm smart, but if I also apply myself, if I focus, if I look for opportunities, if I uh, figure out kind of, how to go around or change the playing field. In your particular situation, you needed to come up with an interesting story. You clearly had the background, you had the smarts, you had gone to work on the manufacturing floor, which now is very rare. Uh, but you know, back then, I'm sure there were lots of folks that were coming from an industry and heavy industry. And to get a reference from somebody that was uh, initially your adversary, sort of like a stroke of brilliance, right? Uh, because you have somebody who started out really not being in your corner, coming out and saying, this guy brought me around and we were able to work together and, yeah. You know, whatever.
1: Yeah. No, so, look, people underestimate the importance of hard work and grit and all these, uh, you know, things. But ultimately, I think they trump talent <laughs> 10 times out of 10.
0: And And so that's a very interesting... Um, You know, I think it's good to hear this in detail because I think people oftentimes assume that, uh, uh, you know, the road was easy for many people. And I know, you know, even now I have people talking to me, uh, for instance, about things like women in venture capital. And there was somebody I was thinking about who also happens to be an Indian woman. When I had my company, I'd gone to raise some seed money from her, and she had a little money and was trying to do something. However, I looked at her background. she was Indian, she had started a company in India and sold it successfully, so by that point, I already invested in India, so I knew something about her. I thought, this is a substantive woman. If she survived in India and she did you know she started a company and sold it over there and is now over here. This woman's a survivor. Um, And by the way, she ended up now, her fund, I think, has been oversubscribed multiple times. She's on the cover of magazines. So this is Bonnie? No, 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 no. no. This is somebody in America. And what people don't know is she went to 700 LPs. Seven, zero, zero to raise her first fund. So when people complain to me, I can't raise money. I'm like, look, a lot of times it's just, It's putting your nose to the grindstone. It is elbow grease. That's all it is. And people don't want to believe that, but um, it really is just taking a decision and going, look, um, I've got to be better than the guy next to me, either working harder or changing the game or figuring out some other way. So I love hearing your story. Okay. So that brings us to HBS, which by the way, I think that's where we ended up meeting in India, right? I was with Intel Capital at an HBS event, I think.
1: Most likely. Yeah. Although you're rare, rarely likely to see me at some event, but uh
0: maybe you were giving it. a talk. But you you <laughs> must have been you must have been at that point the CEO of Microsoft in India. I was. You had yeah, come yeah. to give a talk there, and that's how we ended up meeting. Um So all roads lead back to HBS. So so you when you left Harvard Business School, you clearly you came back to India, correct?
1: No, I actually. I was one of the strange guys who went back to work at Cummins in manufacturing. Okay. Um, Because, you know, I loved the company and they were kind to me. They paid for HBS. So I just went back. And, um, in nine, that was 92. It was four years later in 96 that I came back to India.
0: Okay. So you came back to India and what did you do? Where did you go? Well, that's a
1: whole story in itself. So 96, you know, um, uh, Two things had happened. First, is India '91 in uh, began opening up her economy, and suddenly there was a lot more trade and investment going in, and it was the beginning of India's economic independence. Right. So, and, um, you,
0: and let me ask you, why did you return to India? Was it because of um, a work uh, opportunity? No, family? it was a
1: combination. So, one All part was uh, good old aging parents; only son had felt a responsibility to, uh, to, you know, look after them. I never thought I'd end up coming, staying back for good. Yeah. But I needed to be there for a little while to look after them. And I was excited about what was happening in India. Okay. Uh, you could see something stirring, so that, you know, something exciting beginning to happen. And so I said, wow, oh, okay. I, want to, I wonder what it would be like to be part of uh, helping build modern India and i was looking for an opportunity and there was this giant joint venture that cummins had with Tata motors Tata motors being a major indian uh car manufacturer and uh this jv was failing uh it was new but failing and so it had the ceo job was open because again nobody wanted it there's another theme uh for you sir you i kept taking on roles that nobody else wanted mm-hmm. okay
0: mm-hmm.
1: so so nobody wanted that because who, who in their minds would want to be in Jamshedpur in eastern India mm-hmm. in the middle of nowhere and help close a failing venture it's not good for your career mm-hmm. but I said I'll go I want to go do that and the CEO of the company called me huh, to his office and he said look Ravi we, we actually think the world Why, did, of you Ravi
0: I'm going to stop you why did you decide why, why did you want to do that
1: because it seemed like an opportunity to go back to India, a, eh? and I was thirty-two years old, and this was a big job, big CEO of a very big venture, even if it was failing. Okay. So it was a shortcut to the CEO job. Yeah. Otherwise, I'd have to you know wait. In those days, it was wasn't so common as it is today to be a CEO of something significant. Yeah. Um. At thirty-two. Okay, you might get there by 40, but I was in a hurry. So I said, I'll do it. And then he called me to his office and said, what's wrong with you? You, You've got a good career. You're a high potential, rising fast. One day you might be the CEO. Uh, So why would you want to do it? But then I said, I'm going to do it. And then he said, look, remember what the mission is. Don't get any ideas. The mission is to close this thing with, uh, you know, the minimum losses to come in. I said, yes, boss. And I went off.
0: And, you know, I put... So I was, Ravi, I'm I, going to stop you for a minute. So this was a springboard, really, for you. Yeah, You were was. thinking about this as, hey, I am not going to end up, you know, making my career at this place, but this is a way for me to kind of jump to this role and from here figure out what I'm going to do next in India.
1: Correct. Look, at that point, I was leading a team of 10 people. And here, uh, the, it was a thousand person organization. Okay. Huge, huge company. So, um, uh, but I was unsure how it would work out, you So I put all my things in storage in um, South Carolina. <laughs> a- and for three years, I used to renew my uh, storage thing for six months at a time, okay? It was three years before I realized, no, I'm going to stay here for a while and brought my things back. So, um, but anyway, as it turns out, the, the, the reason the joint venture was doing so badly was it was completely mismanaged. And I quietly began f- helping fix it. And within two years, it was making gobs and gobs of money and became an HBS case study. Um, uh, and then that led to you know me uh, you know, taking on the responsibility for building all of Cummins in India. And by 2003, it was a billion-dollar business in India and generating 20% of Cummins' global profits. That is a sensational number even today. You look at most foreign companies in India, they don't get more than 1% or 2% of their global profits. And we were generating an insane amount of the global profits. So that got the attention of a headhunter who said, look, would you like to come to Microsoft and be the CEO and chairman of Microsoft India? So that's how that happened.
0: So that wasn't such a short shortcut. <laughs> that was a that, long, short shortcut. That cut. was seven years, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and the but rest it is... It takes time of- to do something
1: significant, right? It doesn't happen overnight. That too in manufacturing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's funny because when people ask me for advice, I always say, go work for a big company, go figure out how things are made. There's so much value, even if you don't, even if you're going to go make a dating app or go and, you know, uh, invest in smoke and mirrors, uh, as Craig Barrett likes to call what I do for a living. Um, You, you, there's, there's so much great value in understanding how things are made or how things get from the factory to the store shelves. Um, Working in a big company, understanding hierarchy and process. Uh, how to move people you have no authority over, how to move people that are your adversaries within the company, you know, to move together to create, um, you know, a product or a service or accomplish any objective. So I think there's so much great value. um, And I think it's invaluable doing both of those two things, working for a company that actually makes a thing, like a physical thing, and working for a big company. So that's extraordinary. So you came to Microsoft. That's where we met. And then, of course, you've done so many other illustrious things, including, uh, you know, chairman and being on the board of the Bank of Baroda and Infosys. But all of those, you, you did all those things. I don't know if there's anything you want to, I'm being cognizant of time. I don't know if there's anything that you want to highlight from Microsoft or any great, lesson and yes. I, I i go well, to microsoft because that people always are interested obviously in microsoft um and uh microsoft is an entity the people that come out of microsoft so if there's a lesson or if that, they, there are so many
1: lessons yeah. you, I, yeah. I mean i think i learned more in my eight years at microsoft than any other uh, sort of period of my life um So yeah, what can I say? First of all, it was really um, odd how I got there, because um, you know when the headhunter called me and said, uh, you know, would you look at this job? I said, what's wrong with you? I don't even do email, okay? Those days, uh, which is what two thousand three, yeah, I didn't do email. My secretary used to print my email and I would write, mark it up at night, and give him a folder back in the morning. So I said, I'm. The least qualified person to do it. He said, Look, don't be stupid. You're getting a free um, ticket to Seattle and you get to meet Bill Gates because those days Bill was interviewing all senior uh, you know, candidates. <laughs> and so when else are you going to meet Bill? So I said, ah, That's a good point. So I got on the plane. And they had packed 14 interviews into um, two days. And one of them oh my was God, Bill. That's
0: so typical.
1: Yeah, one of them was Bill, and Bill was remarkable. He showed um, so much interest. And I told Bill, look, I don't even do email, okay, and I came only because I could meet you. Anyway, they still gave me an offer, and then there was a decision. And the problem was I was uh, excited but also terrified of failing
0: of course
1: and and 10 out of 10 people who i asked for advice said don't do this this is going to end badly." because
0: it's a different industry uh and 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 it it was also
1: right no it was a different city but more importantly it was the culture in those days pre satya was just awful it was it was just a horrible culture yeah and they said look it's this is not going to end well. Don't you don't need to do this. And let, me, let me
0: quickly ask you: What do you mean by horrible culture?
1: It was toxic.
0: What do you it mean? Was, it's just it, very tough to be there and backstabbing and yeah. It was. Thing,
1: it, it was. It had a reputation, which turned out to be reasonably well deserved, of being um, uh, very political. Yeah. Um, Your know, the man uh, the. A lot of the people managers were not inspiring people. Um, uh, There was this uh, system of forced ranking where, where, you know, yeah, Yeah. essentially. People
0: people forget, you and I are old enough to know this. um, And, you know, I will say this because I'm sure you can't, but Microsoft was not very well liked in the 80s. And Bill Gates was not seen as the kindly kind of grandfatherly (laughs) figure you think of today that, You know, is sending out his list of favorite books for you to read, you know, every summer. Um, People did not like the Gates. They did not like Microsoft. It was like the evil empire. So I'm thinking it was probably. It
1: It was the Facebook of its time. Yeah. Okay. It really was and the reason they hired some somebody like me who didn't know anything about technology was be- exactly because its reputation was so poor it was distrusted the government was you know trying to uh, mandate open source software for all public applications every cio was trying to get away from microsoft but it wasn't so easy th- those days so to, to, to turn this around they thought i might you know have some shot at it anyway uh i decided look i'm going to take this because when i turned 50 i was exactly 40 then when i turned 50 <clears throat> which which will i regret more you know uh, ha- having had the chance to lead microsoft india or and turned it down because of, i was afraid to fail or because i took it on and then i was sacked for incompetence in a year i said let me try uh the second and The main thing is, let me not think of it as a career with Microsoft, but rather a project. And who knows how long the project would last? And it lasted eight years. There was a great deal I learned out there, uh, both good and bad, about how to do things right, how not to do things right, um, how to navigate the power and influence and um, get things done in a large company where you really don't have much power and authority. And... Um, and I think we did a spectacular job, and I say we because it was very much a collective effort of lots and lots of people. But in this eight years, you as you know, we ended up growing from some negligible little outfit to uh, becoming the largest presence for Microsoft outside the U.S. We became uh, the most respected and admired company in India from being in the doghouse, um, and yeah, of course, the revenues grew very, very substantially, but we changed the way the country looked at, uh, Microsoft and we changed the way, um, Bill and Seattle, uh, looked at India. So that was, what uh, did you,
0: what did you bring over from Cummings in terms of learnings, um, relationships. And strategies that helped you the most at Microsoft relationships?
1: In your relationships and humility. So, you know, being from outside the industry, not knowing anything, one of the things I did quite effectively in the first uh, couple of years was listen to everyone. I tried to understand where they what they thought about the company and how we needed to change. And I think that was the first time anybody had really, in Microsoft, had really bothered to listen. And I did ex- I did do a few extraordinary things. So in those days, there was something called the digital divide. There was great concern that access to computers and the internet uh, would, you know, create a divide. Those who have access, you know, pulling ahead and those who don't getting left behind. And the biggest reason for the, um, for the divide in the minds of a lot of people in india including the government was the cost of software so the price of hardware keeps going down moore's law but the price of software all of which is from microsoft windows offers windows server and all that keeps going up how does this work and so they said at a, in 2005 the it minister at a public event where the president of india was also there said The digital divide is because of Microsoft, and that's pretty damaging. So I sat down with him and said, look, how do we fix this? And he said, give me a low-cost version of Windows. And um, I said, look, every country wants the same thing. Every customer wants the same thing. But I knew that uh, Microsoft had built a low-cost version but was just not going to release it. So anyway, uh, he said, look, if you can get me that, I'll even come to Seattle and you know, you will never get an IT minister of a large country that to India visiting a company, not Washington, D.C. or something. And so I said, deal. And I went back to Redmond and said, look, this is what I agreed to. I mean, the Windows guys were really, really upset. How could you do this? And it was Bill who was fairly indulgent and said, oh, what's the risk? And that's how Windows starter edition happened. Hmm. And, then, and that became really important for the company. Really, really important. And I think that sort of thing won me some respect. So it was listening to people. We're being willing to act. Put your career on the line in you know, th- thoughtful ways. Because uh, they could have sacked me over something like this. Yeah. Um, but uh, look, and the other thing is, yeah, Bill was really hard those days. He had a fearsome <laughs> reputation. Yeah. But it became very clear that um, you know uh, he respected people who were all in. And I, one of the things I have from, as a little memento from my Microsoft days is a $1 bill signed by bill it says i was wrong bill gates and that's because one day he and i got into this huge debate or argument and finally he was grumpy and upset i said i'm not i'm not going to get concede it was midnight on his plane and finally he yeah, agreed. well i guess you're right and <laughs> melinda passed him a dollar bill and he signed i was wrong bill gates and it was things like this that got you some respect. And that respect was the currency you used to get things done and survive in a very difficult time. <laughs> and and one day,
0: one day that, that dollar bill will feed your grandchildren and their grandchildren. I'm sure Well, you I don't have, it off on eBay. <laughs> I
1: don't have grandchildren, but certainly it makes for a good story. And, you know, that's how I, I've remained in touch with Bill. He has helped. He very generously funded us, uh, my own little NGO called GAME and has been kind enough to endorse both, both my books. So whatever. Um, Relationships is what I brought from Cummins, humility, ability to listen. I didn't bring any great intellect or any other edge to it.
0: You know, I really also just wanted to say that, you know, you come, even though you say that you weren't really a scientist, but you come from a more of a technical background. um, And I have found, um, I always, even though, you know, I have more of a, I mean, I studied architecture. My mother likes to say that I'm a technologist because of that, but it's really not true. Um, I'm more from a business background, but I find myself drawn to technical and scientific uh, and uh, engineering-oriented founders and environments, whether that's sort of the National Academy of Inventors, where I was speaking last year, year, because I find that there is not only so much substance, but incredible humility in the room, which I don't see, to be very honest, in pure sort of business like private equity, venture capital, that room, you know, well, More of, you know what I, I mean?
1: I think people from the world of finance and capital are the most overrated and generally amongst the most insufferably arrogant.
0: For no uh, reason.
1: No, it's because of money. You know, we, we live in a capitalist, not just capitalist uh, uh, business, but a capitalist society. And, you know, the, the returns to capital over the last 50 years have been extraordinary. And so fairly modest people have and, enjoyed the rising tide, uh, you And, and yeah. it's like
0: you, you go to these people that have been, you know, won Nobel Prizes. I have almost in my career... I have now had the pleasure of arguing without knowing that they were Nobel Prize winners. They never told me. I found out later. Getting into massive arguments with two much, uh, clearly much older than me, folks walking out. And then one guy I Googled, and I was like, oh, my God, he won the Nobel Prize in chemistry. And then the (laughs) other guy, at one point, I was arguing with him about something. And I said, yeah, but you don't know anything about... I said, well, I, I I said, wait a minute. But do you know that guy that um, uh, won the Nobel Prize in Physics for And this guy very quietly said, uh, "Yes, that that was me." He was a professor. <laughs> and I was like, "Oh my God, I am so embarrassed. I'm really not as dumb as I well, sound." And, you know, I think be, people have so much humility.
1: I think people who have genuinely accomplished something significant tend to be humble. Yeah. It, it is people who haven't and are Correct. insecure that tend to be the ones who are who are immodest and arrogant. Absolutely. So I, I, it has nothing to do with the sciences, or technical thing. I There, I would disagree. I think it's across all fields. Well, so, I,
0: well, listen. I think I think the reason why you do see it more. I mean, I see it very distinctly. I see that separation very distinctly. Are there arrogant scientists? Absolutely, but I think it's because you know, in science, you can never be sure, right? And there's always kind of this path of experimentation. And I just think that it just lends you, you, you understand that the world is bigger than yourself. Um, And I see it in folks as, you know, as diverse as, you know, my old boss, uh, Craig Barrett from Intel, who is Mm -hmm. one of the humblest people I know Mm -hmm. um, come, you know, will come off as somebody that's gruff, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, it's very, very difficult to get him to, uh, you know, show up anywhere. And, and, you know, it's it's just sort of, whereas I can tell you, I've got friends that haven't done uh, very much in life that um, are on their sixth book, and I, I don't understand, you know, what they're doing. But anyway, so I, I think that's a very sort of great insight um, to share with people, uh, because I do think that we live in a time where um, everything is out in the public. People uh, tend to focus on uh, noise versus substance. Um, And I've actually said this in one or two graduating speeches uh, that I've had to give where, listen, put your head down and focus on the work because the Mm -hmm. results will speak for themselves. Um, Mm -hmm. Somebody can really displace you if it's just Instagram. And I've had to say that because there are generations now especially in this country, and I think we set, in this country, I mean, the United States, and I think we end up setting the tone for the rest of the world where people think that, you know, like, this is a little bit of a segue, being an influencer is a real career. Um, and I have to kind of say, listen, I am glad that there are new paradigms and things that are coming up, but at the end of the day, if that's taken away from you, what, what do you have left? I mean, that's it, not, that's something that, you know, you, you are assailable in that sort of position. So anyway, it's another, it's a, it's something that I harp on. And I, I just, I think that there's a, a huge lack of substance and a lack of critical thinking, all think anyway,
1: that. A... I think we're showing our age here. Yeah. <laughs>
0: um, yeah I, you know, but I, I do think it's something that is becoming a bit of a debate in the public square in the United States uh, mm. for multiple reasons, including the fact that we now have frenemies in the world that are intent on uh, basically uh, making sure that the United States does not lead, is not a leader. Um, and there are all sorts of things that are happening to, you know, from science and technology to uh, all sorts of things. And I think there is a lot of uh, kind of conversation um, at all levels now, like, hey, we need to be more strategic. We need to be thinking 20 years out instead of getting in an argument every four years. Uh, about who's going to run the company and then well, spending those four years, sorry, the country. So anyway, it's a whole another. Yeah, that's on, a whole
1: can of worms we'll, out there.
0: We'll do, yeah, that we'll do a, a, another show on. But okay, so so you, you, you leave Microsoft then. You spend eight years at Microsoft um, and have really kind of put it on the map and um, have really kind of changed the perception of the company. And so then you go on and you hold board positions and chairman of the board positions with Volvo and Infosys uh, at very interesting times. But then you decide to go, it seems like, in a completely different direction uh, to do what you're doing now, which is to become the board chair of GEAPP which is the Global Energy Alliance for People and Planet. And it seems more, and becoming a trustee of the Rockefeller Foundation. So it seems like it's going into more of a philanthropic, maybe social impact. Explain to me the thread there and what takes you in that direction.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. I, I, I was hugely influenced by that Steve Jobs Stanford commencement speech, which all of us have Most likely listen to. But he says something which is, which hit me. He says, if for too many days in a row you get up and you're not excited about what you're doing, then it's time for change. And so in 2010, that's where I was in Microsoft. It just uh, achieved the goals that we had set out to achieve to a reasonable extent. And it was no longer fun. Bill had retired. And the culture under Steve and was just very different. Let's put it that way. Um, but I was trapped because it was a big title, good pay. What yeah. do, you do, what do you ne- do next was not obvious. Then, yeah. then 2011, I said, "Look, forget it, Sky. Kind of, uh, you know, I am. I don't know what I want to do next, but I'm clear. I never again want to be an employee." I'm done being an employee, why
0: was that? But, why was that? Because you'd done so phenomenally well yeah, until this point so why I was, what's the I, was
1: tired, I was tired of reporting to and working for people I didn't fully respect okay There were one or two I met who I yeah you know, learned a great deal from and looked up to, but they were by far the exception and i I no longer wanted to do that. I no longer wanted to pay the tax of mindless meetings late night calls, you know, pipeline reviews, all that, you know, I wasn't, it just, you know, wasn't <laughs> exciting me anymore. I was unwilling to pay the tax. So I said, all right, um, what I'm going to do is since I don't know what I want to do is do a bunch of experiments and see you know, where these experiments may lead. And so I, I, I did some radical things. So I I stole a team from of the, some of the brightest people from Microsoft, and we built a business plan to start a SaaS uh,
0: an enterprise SaaS what, company. What year? What year was this, Ravi? Two
1: thousand eleven, twelve. Okay. And um, we got um, got funded, and then and except that the funder was a close mentor and one of the most famous names in India said, "Look, Ravi, are you sure you want to do this?" Because remember, it's very intense and very operational, and somehow I don't think you're at that stage in your life anymore, and I thought about it for a few days <laughs> and, I, and and I realized he's right. I was doing this because everybody else in Bangalore was doing a startup and but I really it wasn't what I was passionate about, so I, to, I told him, "You're right, uh, we're not going to do it." And luckily, the team had not, the ink had not dried on their resignation letters. And so they all went back quietly to their jobs. So that was- That must
0: have been hugely disappointing for them. Um... That was
1: hugely disappointing for them. But anyway, things worked out. I, I decided I wanted to help bring a global company into India, but not as their country manager, not as an employee, but as a partner. So I tried doing that with uh, Amazon, for instance, because Amazon didn't exist in India in 2011-12. So, and under the uh, laws in India, you can't do retail unless you have a local partner. So I uh, went to my mentor, uh, Mr. Narayan Murthy of Infosys and said, boss, let's (laughs) connect with Amazon and bring them in. And you put in the capital I'll run the place. and It's Amazon. Well, uh, next thing you know, Jeff and he tie up and there's no role for me. So like this, I tried. The point I want to make is many of the things I tried didn't exactly work out, but some things did
0: and even uh, and even at your level, right and I think that 's yeah. also important to understand, because people think that oh once you 're you know Ravi Venkateshan or and no, Elon no, no, Musk, no, 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 no. you get off scot free but it 's like look, these guys are getting beaten up in the public eye, you know not everything works out
1: a lot of things didn 't work out, but you know one of the things I tell people is a resume is a lie, you know, for instance, you read out this bit of fiction, which is my resume in the beginning, as you introduced (laughs) me. I was going
0: to say, I feel attacked, but I don't know why.
1: (laughs) No, because that's what you had to go on. And what is a resume? A resume is a string of unvarnished successes that you want the world to believe about you. What it doesn't say is all the many things that you tried that didn't work out, the toil, the disappointments and all that. That's not in any resume. It's, it's a bit of fiction here. So what I'm trying to tell whoever's bothering to listen in is no, I, I, I tried lots of experiments just like any startup and many of them didn't work, but some things did. So I discovered my passion for writing. I wrote my first book, which was very successful. That has led now to a second book and more regular columns. I enjoy it. Then, um, you know, I did the boards and it became very un- a whole bunch of unlikely things. I got um, selected by the government of India or appointed by the government of India to chair a big public sector bank, the second largest public sector bank.
0: That was the ra- Bank of Baroda, right? That
1: was the Bank of Baroda. And when I got the call from the governor of uh, the Federal Reserve, Raghuram Rajan, I said, Look, you're crazy. Yeah, I don't know anything about banking. And uh, I don't understand public sector. So he said, "Look, do you think you'd do worse than the people who came before you?" And so we both had a good laugh. And I said, "Okay, I'll do it." And it was a very challenging but a terrific experience. Terrific. Talk about leading by leading by influence without any power or authority. That was textbook. And it's there in my book. So there were these kinds of uh, corporate adventures. Infosys was a giant adventure which played out on the front page of the newspapers for a year and a half.
0: Yeah, I remember.
1: And then at that time, I started doing small experiments in the social sector. So I started an organization called Social Venture Partners India. Yeah. where we started getting high, uh, successful people, typically in their 50s, wouldn't want to give back but don't know how to start their philanthropic journey. And that became very successful. We spread to seven cities. And that got me hooked into social change, social impact, social entrepreneurship. That mm-hmm. led to my starting game, which is this uh, not-for-profit, trying to create 10 million entrepreneurs in India and then around the world. That got me in touch with UNICEF. And before you know it, UNICEF, uh, uh, E.D. Henrietta Ford said, look, but why don't you become our special representative and b- build our youth mission? And I've been doing that nearly half time for the last four years. And then the um, Rockefeller came about in a similar way. And then suddenly last year, a bunch of funders, IKEA Foundation, Bezos, Earth Fund, And Rockefeller decided to come together to create the Global Energy Alliance to try and help uh, 60 developing countries, you know, make the transition to uh, renewables. And for unexpectedly, they decided uh, I would be a good chair. And I said, look, this is the most important challenge of our times, you know, climate change and embedded in that the energy transition. I'm not sure i'm the most qualified person but they have some confidence i know nothing about energy which is a good place because like banking and software I, i'll get to learn and so here i am again at 59 years old starting on the biggest most important adventure of my life and that's an i think incredibly empowering statement for all those who are a little bit older in their careers you know I, I write about it in my book. I, every day I feel like whatever I've done so far, Saru, is just preparation for what I am to do next.
0: I was just going to say that. I was just going to say that everything, um, I'm going to borrow from uh, Joseph Campbell, who was sort of the philosopher, uh, professor I love here. Joseph Campbell. Yeah, and so many, he borrowed so many ideas from Hinduism and, and was from the, you and 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 was really the person that was the um, inspiration for Star Wars. A lot of people don't know that, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. The hero's journey. And, and he talks about how when you're going through life, um, you really don't see the path, right? It's really confusing. You're like, oh my God, I studied architecture and then I went to business school. And then from there I went to Pepsi and then I went, and it doesn't make any sense. He goes, but when you look back on your life, there seems to be this path that connected everything yes. and you start to realize hey if I hadn't gone to IIT I would have never gotten that job at Cummins if I hadn't yeah. gone to Cummins I would have never been sponsored to go to HBS if yes. I hadn't gone to go to HBS that wouldn't have given me the credential the platform the yeah. blah 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 and you start to see how these things actually start working together and he says it's this whole thing that all of a sudden starts to make sense. And and that's why I always, you know, I, I speak a lot and, and like you, you know, probably not at your level, but I am often out, you know, um, I teach and I'm speaking at conferences and I get asked a lot for advice. And I always tell people, you know what, nothing's a mistake. And that's coming from somebody who thinks everything's a mistake, right? I wake up in the morning at the wrong time. I'm like, oh my God, my day's ruined. So I am already oriented towards being such a perfectionist that um, it's impossible to live in my skin and not be crazy. But I have kind of taught myself, and I know this to be true in my heart, that nothing's a mistake. Whatever you do, whether it's a success or a failure is leading you to the next thing. It's an experience. Preparation to the next thing. Yeah. It is, is to teach you the right thing to do, the wrong thing. So um whatever it is, personal relationships, your jobs, yeah. tragedies, right? So I, I think that is a great way. It's a great segue to lead into sort of your book, which is, you know, it's a different kind of book. Hey, how are you doing thing. on time? I'm fine if you're fine, but but we're good on time as long as you Okay. have the time to spend with us let's and talk I,
1: about the book because i can I, I, never i cannot talk enough about my yeah book, i so. want to
0: get to this piece right so because it's an unusual book um it is what the heck do i do with my life okay and it's it's about getting through how to flourish in turbulent times and you know when i was looking at it i realized it was a little bit different from your typical business book right it's not a
1: business book it's a right life with book. this
0: Well, people would look at you and say, this is going to be a good to great type of thing, right? Which is going to talk about how I'm successful, how I kind of uh, go like charter uh, the waters of corporate America or corporate India or whatever. But the book, when I, when, you know, it goes a lot deeper than that. And dare I say, to me, it sort of seemed like something spiritual. And, you know, I actually looked up the definition of the word spiritual to make sure that I wasn't Not you know I I wasn't attributing something falsely to and and it's relating to and affecting the human spirit as opposed to the physical, uh, as opposed to the physical right and it is about things like identity and purpose and mindset, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I thought it was a little bit different. It's maybe more of a framework, a guide of hey, here's a way to kind of think about things as you're floating along in life and as rilke says believe me life is in the right you are floating along whether you want to believe it or not you know there are forces that are outside of you so this is a way to i kind of thought of it as like harnessing the energy that you have to go along with the flow and figure out how do you make the best of it that's that's what it seemed like to me so
1: your instincts are good
0: so it wasn't necessarily about um, you know, you, you talked a little bit about in the introduction about an iceberg analogy, right? So I'd love to go a little bit deeper into that because I think that kind of captures very well um, kind of what the premise of the book is.
1: Okay, well, the premise of the book is without noticing it, we have slipped into a completely different period in human history. And um, that period of stability that we enjoyed for you know, roughly 75 years after the Second World War has come to an end. And we're in a period of sudden and extreme change. And this change is caused by, it's like a perfect storm, which is it's caused by the confluence of multiple forces. One is technology, there's demographics, there's extreme polarization of, of around ideas both within countries and societies and also between countries there's uh, ex- extraordinary inequality and then there's climate change okay so you've got these and many other forces which are playing off each other reinforcing each other to create uh extreme change and the world will change more in this hundred years in this century than in all of human history. Now the problem with in that uh, such extreme change causes one, the good thing is it throws up unprecedented opportunities. And so, you know, if you're lucky, if you have the right mindset skills, you're on the right zip code, um, yeah, you can, it can be really good, but for many, many, many people, for many, many organizations, countries, so much change is very hard to adapt to, and it, and they can get quite badly crushed. So the cover of my book has this little T Rex on it. If you saw, mm-hmm. and T Rex is a metaphor for: Are you going to adapt, or are you going to perish? And I, I don't put that lightly. I do think the the, the it's the the outcomes are going to be quite uh, extreme. So I said, "All right, if we're living in such a time, then you need a whole different way of approaching things. You need, uh, you know, a whole different mindset, a whole different set of skills, a whole set of different strategies, etc. If you're going to navigate so much change and and come out of it not just all right, but actually flourishing." And that's what I decided to un- explore and unpack in this book. So, yeah, so that's kind of the premise. Um, we'll pause here and see if you have more questions that are helpful.
0: So, so that's the premise. Do you have, um, you know, I was thinking about, when you know, talking about change. We live in a time where everything is changing so quickly. And we talked earlier in the conversation um about substance uh, versus noise, right? And of folks that maybe younger generations uh, maybe aren't thinking critically, aren't developing the kind of hard skills that maybe a generation or two uh, before them, you know, sort of focused on and built their careers on. And things are changing so quickly, right? We've gone from just for instance, like workplace culture, right? Where if you had depression, or you were having a tough time, at least in America, you could never let on, you would have to show up. And now we've gone to, I'm taking a mental health day. Um, And, you know, and I credit, you know, the generation after me for being very open about, I think sometimes we think that you're taking a little bit too far, but, um, you know, I, I'm taking a mental health week. Um, I don't want to work in a job that's not mission driven. You know, I will say that when I started my company, We had scores of people working for us for free or for very low pay because they loved the mission mission. of the company, okay? Which also brings me to another great piece of advice, which I only learned very late in life, which was, um, you know, don't attach yourself to a person, a product, or a company. Only attach yourself to a purpose or mission. And that way, you end up staying very kind of focused and nothing can sort of, uh, dislodge you. And I thought that was very interesting, because I did spend my career getting attached to an idea, or a a leader, or a particular company, my identity was tied up with that. Mm-hmm. Versus, you know, I think what many leaders end up coming to towards the end um, of their sort of corporate journeys, uh, which is they start to become very focused on mission. Uh, and, and also, sometimes, you know, some people sort of, capture that as saying, you know, giving back or paying it forward or something like that. But it yeah. becomes more mission-driven, whatever it is. Mm. Um, and so I think that you know, your so much advice that's given out in business books is so outdated. It's um, completely it changes, outdated. It changes because things change so quickly. Not just generationally, but look at the mega events that are happening in the world. Whether that's yeah. COVID, right? Ukraine. Very surprising... Side effects from COVID, right? Venture capital thought it was going to, you know, that's it. It was over. And it ended up being the best year venture ever had. Yeah. Um, every single thing that a venture capitalist would have told you 10 years ago, I only invest in my backyard. I need to see the person face of it. All that stuff went out the door, right? So um, what is, if you're going to give somebody a kind of takeaway from your book, what is, what is the one or two things that you would like somebody to take away from reading your book or that you hope that they get a sense of? Um, in, in, like, what would be <clears throat> you? I'd
1: say, look, I, if I were giving somebody the elevator pitch on how to improve your odds of success um, in this century three or four things one is you need to approach life like you're you know going on some big exploration you know like the great explorers of the 17th and 18th 19th centuries so um you don't yeah and you don't know what you're going to encounter but you're prepared for most things the single most important thing that matters is mindset. And, um, you know, I have the almost the very first chapter of the book is devoted to uh, mindset because what you believe is what you achieve. And Henry Ford who said, whether you think you can or whether you think you cannot, you're right. Mm-hmm. So I unpack the whole issue of, you know, growth mindset, fixed mindset, abundance versus scarcity, um, self-belief. So these sort of And things you
0: know are, and so. you know we talked about failure. His story was failure after failure, you know, yeah. until he actually made it. Yeah.
1: It's true for most people. So yeah. so mindset's important, develop cultivating that mindset very intentionally is important. You talked can about I, skills. Can Sorry, I interrupt
0: God. you for just a second and throw in a practical? I want to ask you a I want to throw in a practical example. All right. So what or rather not even an example, question. If um, so about having that Adventurous, and I'm going to be open and I'm going to look at my career as all different kinds of opportunities that could yeah, be yeah. coming for me. But what if you actually have a family to feed and you have to take a job? I don't have that choice to just kind of go off on a ship and go, you know, I've got a family at home. I'm married. I have kids or <laughs> I've got loans to pay. Off. What then? I, I've got to take a job. I can't kind of just experiment and do what I want to do and be open minded. I've got to go no. work at CVS just to be, you know. No, no, uh, no, no. no.
1: It's, it's the reality for most people. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, you know. the. How does yeah. this fit in then? It fits in perfectly because what you do is, um, one of the things that Aristotle said, uh, how many years, 2,500 years ago, What do the best you can with what you're best at. Okay. So let's say you're, you know, some working at CVS. What you try and do is do the best that you're capable of. Show up every day. Uh, show up with a positive attitude. Um, do your job as excellently as you can. Mm-hmm. Try to show initiative. Be helpful to your colleagues. You're going to stand out. Yeah. You're going to get noticed. Yeah. And you're going to attract more opportunities. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that may be within CVS or so it may be outside. Yeah. Yeah. You know you have to believe that this is going to result in good things so i think you differentiate yourself with your attitude and your excellence and yeah good things you improve your skills you work hard at nights and and try and learn new things you stretch you strive and you slowly will climb your way out of uh, into a better future look i i you know my own story i started out in a really shitty shop floor yeah really crappy place uh, but i was grateful because it was a job and i was an immigrant i had an h1b visa and you know i said look i'm just grateful and I, yeah. but i knew that's where i was starting but that's i also knew I, that's not where i would end up yeah <laughs> so you you've got yeah, you you got to just work at it and it eventually yeah windows open so um but that mindset, which is part of what is called the growth mindset, is something that's incredibly correlated, I think, with success mm-hmm. and um so read chap- read the book, read chapter two but moving along quickly, skills people you know think of hard skills the way you actually talked about it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What matters actually are soft skills and in particular i talk about four skills which are the sort of magical meta skills or super skills one is um learning agility another one is the entrepreneurial mindset a third is um pe- you know people skills and fourth is leadership if you have a decent amount of these things you you're good for a hundred years okay so i'm not going to unpack that further but it turns out that these sorts of things matter way more than whether you know you go online and pick up a certificate in, you know, analytics or supply chain management or whatever is hot right now. I don't even know what's hot right now. Then the third thing that matters a lot, you, and then I'll shut up, is something called intangible assets. You know, we're going to have lots and lots of unexpected developments and shocks like COVID, sudden war. Um, now, there are four books that I saw reviewed in the FT on will there be a civil war in the U.S. by 2050. Nothing is out, out of the realm of possibility. Okay, yeah. So we're all going to deal with unexpected shocks. You know, your company could get acquired. You may be out without a job tomorrow or whatever. So how do you navigate so many transitions and shocks? Of course, you need to have some savings. And so, you know, we work towards putting away a little bit for a rainy day. And that's your hard assets. But the intangible assets are even more important for navigating these uh, changes. And intangible assets are things like, who's in your life? You know, who are your closest friends and family? And, you know, because those are the people who will, Cushion your shock when you fall. Um, You know, in India, four and a half million people died during COVID. And there was during the second wave, there was no oxygen cylinders, no hospital Mm -hmm. beds and and no medications. People are dying like flies. And, you you know, but what kept us kept it all going were these little webs of relationships. We came to each other's support and that's what's going to happen you see what's going on in ukraine right now so you need to have that you, the other intangible assets your reputation what's your professional reputation what do people think of you because that's what's going to attract opportunities what do you have networks right do you have particular skills so you have to cultivate these things your reputation your networks your 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 closest relationships your faith you need Look, more and more as we get hit by the, you know, these big shocks and the unexpected. If you don't have some spirituality, some faith, uh, I think things will be really hard. So you need to cultivate these things, these intangible assets, if you're going to ride out the storm. So these are all some ideas from the book.
0: And and do you think that these all of these things are side effects of or things that are happening in parallel with actually doing the work, whether that's you're on a shop floor or you're yeah. on Microsoft? Yeah, you do this
1: you're, you're doing this along the way, just along like you're getting, this, yeah. Yeah, you get up in the morning, you brush your teeth, you eat, you exercise, um, you listen to music, you cultivate your intangible assets, you pick up some skills. <laughs> Yeah. You just integrate this into what you do and you become more and more intentional about it. See, the problem right now is everybody is not everybody. A lot of people are just sleepwalking their way through life, hoping things will turn out all right. And if you're lucky, it might. But you can't count on it. So you, I say that one of the most important things is wake up recognize you in a different realm right now and be intentional about these things be intentional about all your choices and especially you know who you hang out with where you live where you, who do you look up to and admire um, and so where you get your information from i hope it's it's not facebook or something like that
0: yeah it's important so I want to ask you, uh, this book, uh, it looks like it's been a bestseller. Um, and, uh, I, are you on a book tour or are you, um, just kind of sharing it with folks right now or. Well, informally? I
1: decided, I decided to focus on launching it, um, only in India and okay. it's, it's been a runaway bestseller there. Yeah. Um, yeah um it's number 1 on amazon for many many weeks or what for whatever that's worth but i also i also recognize very few people actually read books anymore so we get our information through conversations like this on podcasts little videos and you know, talk, you know people consume information very differently so um outside the uh, outside india I, I i do these sorts of things but um, I haven't actually actively promoted the book. I'm not doing a book tour or book events and so forth.
0: Will there be an audio an audio version?
1: Yes, Audible's coming out with it. You're doing an Audible. Okay, that's perfect.
0: Yeah. Um, we are actually creeping up on 9.30. I don't know if you wanted to, I want to be cognizant of the fact that you are not feeling well. You Well, I'm like feeling better me.
1: after talking to you. Oh, well, that's
0: uh, that's very kind. Um, But um, I want to be cognizant of the fact that uh, your voice, you may have things to do tomorrow. Um, And I wanted to, you know, I I, I think it would be actually really interesting to go deeper on the book, like maybe do a session on just going a little bit, because I think it is I think it is worthwhile because it is, um, you know, if you're not doing promotion, um, I think this is something that could really benefit a lot of folks. Um, And, you know, like I said, when I was kind of looking at trying to draw like a couple of themes out of it, to me, I I really wrote down the word. I think this seems like more of a almost kind of like a spiritual guide. And I don't necessarily mean that in a religious uh, sense or a sense of like, you know, looking for, um, you know, something that you can believe in, but more of like um, digging down the kind of drivers of, you know, mindset.
1: I don't know if you read the book uh, or you're in the process of it, but I quote someone who um, says we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual yep. beings having a human experience. Human
0: experience, <laughs> yeah, that's right?
1: right. So at our essence, we've, we need to recognize we are spiritual beings. And there is, you know, to have that experience, we have to have a human body with all these sense organs strapped on you know today we're talking about the metaverse but this is the metaverse and we have these experiences so yeah I think that perspective is uh, a fairly useful one
0: and you know I did I actually had an epiphany talking to you as I was thinking about wait a minute why isn't that so many folks like Ravi people that have run these you know large um, complex organizations um, always end up going to do things that, you know, we kind of throw into that, that broad social umbrella. It's um, very simple. You know what I mean? Education or climate or whatever. Craig's doing that. He's very focused on education. Sure. You're doing, and why is it all of it is kind of, you get to the point where you realize, and I might be reading too much into it, but maybe not. I mean, we're all connected at the end of the day. And yes. you, you, we like, you know, there's that wonderful native, uh, American saying, um, and you don't even have to look that far. There's so much, you know, an in Indian philosophy that tells you that. But, but in American Indian, uh, native, you know, Native American kind of wisdom, which is we're all branches coming from the same tree. So there mm. is this desire, and branches on the tree don't fight the way that we do, you know. And mm. so there is this kind of desire to say, hey, wait a minute, I've achieved all of this success. I've clearly done some things uh, correct, as you know, at mm-hmm. least in the lens of kind of popular or public, uh, you know, or national. Society. Right, society. So what can I do to kind of give back? What are the lessons I can share? Or how can I move the ball forward for maybe those areas where, you know, whether it's climate or energy or education or poverty or literacy or whatever, And so I literally just started to think while you were talking, I'm like, why does everybody do this? Why don't they just go back and run another company? Like, I'm sure you could go back. Anybody would take you, right? Like, come figure out what's happening at Xerox. IBM's in trouble. Come to IBM and help us figure stuff out.
1: Oh, I think, uh, I doubt that's the the reality.
0: No, but so so many of folks of your ilk, go in a completely different direction right of doing all of this this stuff and writing books and trying to spread spread the wisdom
1: it's a phenomenon called the second mountain Hmm. Hmm. so it's the second mountain on the first mountain it's all about yourself and so you climb up that and it's about uh, establishing yourself, starting a family, making money, being seen as successful and so forth. And you, you know, rise up um, in the eyes of the world. And then you come to a certain stage and you look around and you realize, wow, I'm on a tiny little hill and there's so many bigger mountains and there's so many people who have, you know, climbed so much further. Mm-hmm. And by the way, on top of this hill, I didn't get nearly the joy um, I thought I would get. And, that's
0: really interesting. Okay, I would at and, one point love to go into that deeper. With yeah, me. and that's then you really climb
1: down and if you're wise, you start climbing up the second mountain of your life where it's no longer about you. It's about, you know, losing yourself in, in service. That's not how everybody may articulate it, but that's really what it is. And it's a pity that very, I think it's relatively few people who have the wisdom to realize that the second mountain is diff- different, Most, I think most successful people, you know, when they reach the top of the first mountain say, Oh, I just need to find a higher Hill. And they climb up another mountain mm-hmm. exactly like the first one, just more. And then they end up looking back at their lives with a sense of certain regret, um i don't think craig barrett's going to die feeling much regret i don't know him but if he's doing those things chances are he's going to yeah look back with at his life with some satisfaction and i hope so anyway um, that's as you said a whole different conversation and a whole different episode which i'd love to have
0: well we would love to have you back um and we should do that so the um but I, I want to be, again, cognizant. I can hear that your voice uh, is, cracking. Uh, is cracking. And so I want to uh, wrap up, and we will definitely have you back. Your book is What the Heck Do I Do With My Life? How to Flourish in Our Turbulent Times. It's a runaway bestseller in India. Uh, the Audible version is coming out. Uh, it is a book really about uh, exactly what the title says, How to Flourish in Our Tur- Turbulent Times. And it's by Rumpy Rump- excuse me, Ravi is the former CEO and chairman of Microsoft on the boards of uh, uh, currently of Hitachi and the Rockefeller Foundation. He is currently the chairman of the GEAPP and the founder of GAME. He's also a venture capitalist. My mouth hurts with all of the things that you've done. Uh, we've tried to stick it into the intro here, but please go out and read this excellent book. And Ravi, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us When I know that you're not feeling great, but we will have you back uh, when you're feeling a little bit better. And I'd like to do maybe a deeper dive into some of these things that we talked about, because uh, I think it's um, very, very interesting. We could go on.
1: Fabulous. And my thanks to anybody who bothered to tune in and listen
0: to us. Thank you so much. And guys, we will be back next Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Curiouser and Curiouser. See you guys next week. Take care.
1: Bye-bye.